Our text for today is in Isaiah 59, 14 to 60, 22. Have you ever tried to look at a blank white piece of paper on a very bright, sunny day? I was doing my homework outside the other day, and I was trying to do this. I was trying to look at this piece of paper, and it was shining so brightly that I could barely look at it. This example actually is perfect for a day like today, where the sun is shining off of the church, and it is exceedingly bright. And so, just like the sun makes this ordinary piece of paper extraordinarily bright as it reflects the sunlight, we see that in our text, God makes his church extraordinarily bright as we reflect the light of his glory. Our text says that God will draw his people out of the darkness of the world into the light of his glory. And I hope that we can see from our text today that we have been redeemed out of darkness to reflect God's glory. We have been been redeemed out of darkness to reflect God's glory. So we'll see this in two ways. First, we'll see how we've been redeemed out of darkness. We'll look at the darkness that we once walked in and then the light that we are called to walk in. So our text begins with a similar tone to where we left off last week. There is this desire for justice from the people, but there is an inability to do it. Look at verse 14 and 15. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes him makes himself a prey. There's a lack of justice. There's an abandonment of truth. And where truth is lacking, we see that falsehood comes in and fills the gaps so that if anyone would seek to practice the truth, he becomes a prey. Maybe you have experienced ways in which practicing the truth has made you a prey. We're living in a culture that is increasingly opposed to biblical truth. And perhaps you've been asked to do something that your conscience tells you is not right. But you know that if you stand up and do what's right, you will make yourself a prey. Maybe you've seen an opportunity to share the gospel, but you've been afraid of how somebody would perceive it. And so you've remained quiet wishing not to make yourself a prey. In these situations, it's easy to go with the flow and to try not to ruffle feathers. And the question that I am asking myself when I face these circumstances is, which do I fear more, displeasing man or displeasing God? And so what we see in the second half of verse 15 is that the Lord sees the injustice and it it displeases him that there is no justice. God is not indifferent to injustice. He's not indifferent towards our sin. And so may we be transformed to have hearts to perceive what sin really is 
And may it displease us as it displeases God. Now, this was a prophetic word for Judah, but this is really true in every culture, time, and place, that injustice is prevalent from fall to redemption. So if we look at the world today, we can clearly see this. As I, as I say this, we might think of the most grave injustices, but what, we, what I hope we realize is that what lies at the heart of the most grave injustice resides also in our hearts. We have sin. Truth is lacking. We do not extend the same grace that we wish to receive from others. We fail to love our neighbors as we know we should. We fail to love God as we know we should. And here we see that this is displeasing to God. But then in verses 16 and 19, we see God's response to the lack of justice. In 16 and 17, we see God is coming to intercede on behalf of the sinner. He stands in between the sinner and the wrath that the sinner deserves. He stands between the sinner and his sin. And God intercedes to make restoration possible for people who would turn to him. But in verses 18 and 19, we see that those who will not turn from their rebellion will face the wrath of God. And we see that this results in the fear of the Lord and his glory rising like the sun. If we fail, fail to fear God, that is, if we fail to fear him in reverent fear, beholding the weight of his glory, if we fail that now, we will come to fear him in the day of judgment. Now, for those of you who are here and are not yet believers, this sounds like a harsh word. But the good news is that the door is open for you. And so let me ask, do you sense that sin resides in you? Do you sense this seed of injustice in your heart? Where are you seeking salvation? And for those who are believers, do we seek to be justified outside of Christ? Maybe you think, if I do enough good, I'll, it will outweigh the bad and I'll be right with God. What we see here is that it's not our work that makes us right with God, but it is his work. So we cannot do what we know is right, even if we know that we should. And maybe you keep trying and you keep failing. You try to do what is right. And you might think, what is wrong with me? The good news is that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died so that we might have life in him. And so God's own arm brought salvation. He will give life to those who turn from transgression and turn to him. So if you have not come to know this truth, 
and you want to hear more, I encourage you to stick around, talk to me. I'm sure Stephen wouldn't mind if I put him on the spot and say, talk to Stephen. Talk to a number of people in this room who would be delighted to share more. And this gospel truth is not just for those who have not yet come to believe, but it's also for those who have. And so if you are coming here with a burden that you are carrying, that you wish to work to be right with God, lay that burden at the cross. Our home is no longer in the darkness of injustice because of the glorious intercession of God. He frees us from the bonds of self-exalting, relationship-breaking sin into the freedom of walking in truth and justice by the power of the Spirit. And so now we see this pivot point in our text. Look at verse 20. We see that a Redeemer comes to Zion, to those who turn from transgression. A Redeemer comes in order to release from the bondage of sin. The Redeemer comes to those who turn from sin. So we see that repentance is a necessary condition for the redeemed. This means turning away from our sin and turning to God. After all, how can we be freed from sin and yet still live in bondage to it? There is a call away from the darkness in which we once walked into a new way of life. Now, verse 21 is interesting because it says that the covenant is with them, meaning the, those in Zion who turn from transgression. But then it says, my spirit is upon you. And you would think that you is referring to Zion, but it's actually in a different form. It's the masculine singular form, so it can't be Zion. And it's most likely referring actually to the servant of the Lord. That is God's anointed. So this is referring to Christ. And so we are the offspring of the anointed. So the promise for those of us who turn from transgression is that the word will not depart from our mouths. In other words, keeping the truth of God's word is the continual mark of the redeemed. That is us, the church. And so, church, we take God's word seriously. May we be a people that delights in God's word. May we be a people that meditates on his word and lets the truth sink deeply into our hearts so that it transforms us. May we speak these words often to ourselves and to each other and to others out of a heart that is steeped in God's word. Brothers and sisters, if you are not spending regular time in the word, you are missing out on the nourishment that it will give. You're missing out on life. And even more seriously and con consequentially, you might just be failing to grasp the weight of God's word and its implications for our lives now and in eternity. Do not neglect the word of God. And so we consider the darkness 
in which we once walked, and we consider the redemption, the, or excuse me, the, the repentance that summons us to come out of the darkness, and now we consider the light that God calls us to in chapter 60. And as we look at Isaiah 60, let's consider the radiance of Zion's glory, the response to Zion's glory, and the resulting state of glory that we will experience in New Jerusalem. So first, the radiance of Zion's glory. Isaiah 61 and 2 describe a picture of God's glory rising like the sun upon his people. We see in verse 2 and 3 that his glory is our light. It says that his glory will be seen upon you. And then it says, the nation shall come to your light. God's glory is the glory of Zion. It is the light of Zion. That is to say that God's glory is the glory of the church. This has implications, major implications, for how we view ourselves, both individually and corporately. We exist to give God glory. It's not as if when we fail to give God glory, that he becomes less glorious. But when we reflect his glory, it is seen so that his glory is recognized. That's what it means to glorify God. And so this means that we want God's glory to be on display in all that we do. So as we sing, we sing not in order to exalt ourselves, but to put God's glory on display. And when we read God's word, both in the scripture readings and in the sermon, and even individually, we are doing this to put God's glory on display. And the way that we conduct our lives ought to put God's glory on display. His glory is seen upon us when we delight in him and we delight in his word. And when we live in a way that exemplifies our trust in him, when we live in this way, this exalts God. This reflects God's glory. In verse 2, we see that while the world is in a state of darkness, God's glory shines upon us so that his glory will be seen upon us. And soon we'll look at the response to the radiance of Zion's glory. But for now, I want us to consider the implication of verse 3 as it pertains to the radiance of Zion's glory. Let's think about this. A nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This glory is attractive. It draws people in. It draws people in who are in darkness into the light of God's glory. And so, consider this as we think about Jesus' words 
in Matthew 5, where he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have light that the world seeks after. Amen? We have light that the world seeks after. And so while people are stumbling in darkness, we have light to offer them. And we know that some will reject the gospel, but let this not stop us from being a city on a hill, a light to the nations, shining brightly so that others will see our good works and give glory to God. And this is what it means to, refle- to reflect God's glory. So brothers and sisters, let us not shy away from the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. Next, we see the response to Zion's glory. I already mentioned verse 3, which says the nation shall come to your light. The next section of our text gives an account of nations bringing their wealth to Zion in response to Zion's glory, which ultimately is the response to God's glory shining through God's people. And not only is there a response from nations, but in verse 4 and 5, we see a counter-response from Zion. There's a call to see and rejoice as the nations come. And so we should rejoice in what God is doing globally. Verse 4 says, Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. And then verse 5 says, You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. And so here we see this call to observe what God is doing as his glory reflects off of his people and he works mightily to bring the nations to himself. And not just to observe, but to exalt, to be thrilled. This is one reason why we desire to be a church with a mind towards missions. While we, of course, desire that our community would come to know Christ, we also rejoice in the work that God is doing around the world. As we continue on, we see an account of the various nations bringing their wealth to Zion. And so the nations that are named here in verses 6 to 9 represent Nations that are both near and far. So God is doing this work on a global scale, near and far. And what are we to make of the nations bringing their wealth to Zion? Is this some sort of get-rich scheme for the church? Are we supposed to take this to mean that the church will prosper monetarily? It's a good question. Well, it might help for us to consider 
an example that we find in Scripture. This account is reminiscent of nations bringing their wealth into Jerusalem during the reign of Solomon on account of the wisdom that God gave him. As accounted in 1 Kings 10, we don't have time to go there, but if you have time this afternoon, it's actually quite interesting to see the parallels. And these parallels in this passage make for an, ex- uh, an excellent illustration of what is happening here in Isaiah 60. So the account of wealth coming is not merely an account of Jerusalem's prosperity under Solomon, but it was indicative of the glory that God gave to Solomon and the response of the nations. So in the same way, this passage is not merely speaking of material prosperity for the church. Wealth coming in from the nations is indicative of the glory of the church, which is given by God and the response of the nations to that glory. And so this reality is actually far greater than material prosperity. God is showing us that his glory goes out, reflects off his people, and there is a great response of people coming in, being drawn into him and drawn into his people. Nations that once were against, against Zion, against the people of God, will be grafted in. And so it says in verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. And then verse 11 indicates a time of peace and prosperity. See this, the gates of Zion will be open for all who would wish to enter. The gates of Zion are open for all who wish to enter. But for those who will not come, verse 12 says, For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. So in this, we see an invitation, and then we see a warning. There's an invitation to all who would come, and a warning for those who will not. And so, considering the radiance of Zion's glory, and the response to this radiance, I want to jump back. This is not really so much in the category of the response. This is more towards the category of the radiance. But there's several times here in this account of God beautifying his temple. So we see in verse 7, I will beautify my beautiful house. Then again in verse 13, we see this concept of beautifying the sanctuary. It says, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So we might consider how someone in Judah could have taken this prophecy. They might have thought they would return to the glorious days of Solomon. They might have thought that the wealth of nations would come as it did in the days of Solomon. And though Solomon initially made the temple, this time God would make 
the temple more glorious. This is what they would expect. And if we fast forward a hundred years when the people are in exile, they might have looked at this prophecy and looked at verse 14. They might have had this expectation that the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And then at the end of the exile, they're coming back into Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the temple. And they see that they're bringing in the glorious wood from Lebanon. That's what Lebanon was known for. They're seeing this and they're thinking, at last this prophecy is coming to pass. But to the dismay of those who had experienced the temple of Solomon, when the temple was finished, it was not as glorious as the previous temple. Because the beautification of the temple and the bringing in of the nations to Zion is far more glorious than the people realized. And we know this now because we have the benefit of seeing far more of the story than they ever saw. You see, God did make his temple glorious. Jesus said in response to those who questioned his authority to cleanse the temple. You see that parallel there? He's cleansing the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But he was talking about the temple of his body. And so, this time, the rebuilding of the temple was far more glorious God made his temple more beautiful when Christ died and rose in glory. And now we wait for a continued realization of the glory that's presented in this text. And so we turn our attention to the resulting glory that will be experienced in the new Jerusalem. There are extremely clear parallels between this text and Revelation 21. And again, while we don't have time to go there now, I do implore you, I think it would be very encouraging for you to see the glory of the new Jerusalem. So read Revelation 21. It's your homework assignment. I'm not going to grade you, but it's there. So as we continue in verse 17, we see... There's rebuilding to a greater level of glory. We see, I will make your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And then we come to verse 19. Verse 19 is incredible. I don't want us to gloss over it because I want us to see that it's incredible. The sun shall be, excuse me, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. We are approaching a time when we will see God's glory face to face. 
We cannot even fathom what this will be. The brightness of the sun would not compare. If we were to live on the surface of the sun, it does not compare. We will be in the presence of the maker of the sun. Can we even fathom this glory? I can't even look at a piece of paper that is reflecting the light of the sun. Can we fathom this glory? And so, this glory that we reflect now is an earthly reality, or an earthly shadow, excuse me, of a heavenly reality. It's an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. Now we aim to be reflective surfaces for God's glory, but then God will be our glory. And what's more, our days of mourning shall be no more, and we will be righteous, completely righteous. At last, this is describing a day when the curse of sin and death is no more. A final restoration of man so that man will have right relationship with God and with others and even with ourselves. Think to the hurt and the pain that we experience in relationships and realize how glorious this is. To, to be restored, completely made right. I look forward to that day. And now, God gives us this, pers- this purpose statement for all of this. He gives us the reason that he offers salvation and the reason that sin must be punished and the reason he is drawing in the nations and the reason he beautifies his beautiful house and the reason he makes his church beautiful. We see it throughout this passage and he says it again in verse 21 that I might be glorified. All of this is for the glory of God. Not that this changes God's glory, but again, that we would recognize God's glory. It all displays God's beauty. So now, what implications would this have for us? Not just as we look forward to the future glory of New Jerusalem, but now as we wait. For one thing, we might recognize that the world is also trying to offer you a kingdom. The world is trying to offer you a kingdom that looks a little bit like New Jerusalem. No more mourning, no more problems. But what the world offers is a kingdom without the king. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. It is like someone offering you a worn-out, dusty, dead light bulb. does not give light. When you are, on the other hand, being offered the sun. Do you see that comparison? A dead light bulb compared to the sun. Don't buy it. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not be consumed by the world. But then at the same time, we don't just check out of the world. We are called to be lights, to reflect God's glory. But what we don't do is passively wait 
and expect that God will just shine on us when we are not looking to him. And so our activity, our activeness in this endeavor is that we actively pursue him so that our hearts would overflow in his glory. Let us behold his glory and be a reflective surface. So we're not indifferent to injustice, but at the same time, we don't do good in order to exalt ourselves. We don't do good for a sense of moral superiority, but we do good to reflect God's glory. Our justice and our righteousness is an extension of God's justice and his righteousness. Flowing out of us. So whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed in order to reflect God's glory. May we turn from our sin and turn to him so that his glory would be on display in us. He brings us out of darkness for this purpose. And we press towards the goal of resting in his glory. We can spend an entire life chasing after our own glory, but let us recognize that this glory does not last. His glory is the only glory that lasts. So let us pursue it with earnestness. Look forward now to the future glory of New Jerusalem and let it be our strength and our courage as we continue to press towards the goal. And now you might think, this sounds too glorious for me. I am so ordinary. Let us look, Isaiah 60, verse 22. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. Brothers and sisters, God takes what is ordinary, and in the light of his glory, he makes it extraordinarily bright. So let us not think we're too ordinary. Let us reflect God's glory. And Lastly, as we earnestly hope for New Jerusalem, and yet we are surrounded by the darkness of the world, we cry out, Lord, come, bring this glory. And we see in verse 22, end of verse 22, I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. And so this will come slowly, but then suddenly. So let us wait with a patient, eager expectation of the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your glory. We thank you that you have redeemed your people, Lord God. We pray that we would be made white by the blood of the Lamb and that we would reflect your glory so that all might see and give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.